Good morning, church. How are you? Nice to see you. We're diving into Genesis 46, as we just read. Now, the verses we're looking at this morning are only just sort of at the very beginning of Genesis 46. Then in the middle of Genesis 46, there's kind of a long uh, genealogy, and we'll reference that here in a minute. And then next week, we'll look at the end of 46 and all of 47. But this morning, as we look at 46, in order to kind of understand the... Oh, in order to understand the context, it helps to sort of know what's happening. Let me say this. I forgot to introduce myself. That's not very nice. My name's Darren. So hi. It's nice to meet you. If you're a guest with us today, we're glad you're here. And I don't want to just rush past that thing and not say hello because we love having guests. And whether you've come with family or friends or maybe you're just from the neighborhood, whatever brings you here today, we're, we're glad that you're here. So that said, last week in our study in Genesis 45, at the end of Genesis 45, we see that Jacob gets the news that his son Joseph, who he thought was dead, is actually alive. And he's excited about that. And in fact, at the end of 45, he says, hey, I got to go and see him. Now, it's convenient because... Pharaoh and Joseph had both invited Jacob and his family to move to Egypt. They got five years of famine left. And so it's, it's helpful because the Pharaoh and Joseph have said, come. And so Joseph at the end of 45 says, I'm going to go and I'm going to see my son Joseph before I die, before the end of my life. Now it's interesting because Jacob is, uh, in some ways, we've heard him talk about his own mortality several times. Remember when, uh, when there was the suggestion that he would take Benjamin, that the brothers would take Benjamin to Egypt, one of his responses was, I don't want you to take him because if something happens to Benjamin, I'm going to go to my grave. The gray hairs will go down to Sheol, right? He's a little bit preoccupied with his own death. Here, at the end of 45, once again, he says, I want to go and see Joseph. I want this great opportunity to see my son before I die, right? So we know that for, for Jacob, he is thinking about everything in the context of the fact that he only has a few years left to him. Uh, most theologians agree that he's around 130 years old at the time in which Genesis 46 takes place. So he's thinking about the fact that his days are numbered, and he's got decisions to make. He's, he's thinking about and considering uprooting all that he has, all of his family, and going to a foreign land. And while on one hand, he's excited about that, and he's eager to see his son who he thought he was dead, there is also a little bit of reluctance. He's got some hesitation. He's got a little bit of anxiety about what this transition can mean. And all of us uh, at different times in our life have, uh, have fear and stress and anxiety about making decisions, but also in light of the fact that we only just have this life and we have a limited number of days. And sometimes it can be difficult to decide what to do because it feels like every decision we make has such finality to it. Everybody in the room has either made big decisions in the past or will certainly make big decisions in the future. And in those moments where you're trying to assess and discern, what should I do? I know what I want to do, but what's the best thing to do? Sometimes we can feel a little bit paralyzed in the midst of trying to make those determinations. If you're trying to make decisions about where to live or where to go to college or who to marry, you're trying to make decisions about what to do vocationally. Should you stay in your job or switch jobs? What are you going to pour your time and your effort into? What to do about relationships? All of these can be momentous things that sometimes take on some pretty significant gravity. So we come to Genesis 46, and at the beginning, we see Jacob moving toward Egypt to be reunited with his son. But here, by the time we get to the second verse, we see that Jacob stops. He stops in a place called Beersheba. 
Beersheba is a, is a sacred space for Jacob and his family. It's a place where God had met with his grandfather Abraham and, and, and offered him a covenant. It's a place where God had met with Isaac and it re-extended that covenant. It's a place where Jacob himself had uh, taken the birthright with some sort of mischievous deceit, right? This is a place where God had met he and his family multiple times. And significantly, Beersheba is also on the edge of the, of the land of promise. So when you sometimes hear Canaan or the promised land described, sometimes in just sort of shorthand, it's referred to as uh, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan being on one end and Beersheba on the other end. When Jacob comes to Beersheba, he, he literally is on the precipice of leaving the land of promise. But it's also a sacred space. It's a place where God has spoken to him and moved in his life. A place of remembrance for him. And it's in that place that he offers a sacrifice. It says in verse 1, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He's at this fork in the road. He's at this place where he's trying to determine what the best course of action is. And so he offers this sacrifice. If you've ever been in a spot where you're having to make a decision, a big decision, and you're not sure which way to go, you know that there are these moments along the way where you're making a decision and you just hope it's the best thing. I remember uh, when we lived at Hume Lake. So here, here's something interesting. I actually am just coming back from being at Hume Lake as well. Not only were our students at Hume Lake all week, but I have, a, uh, I have been invited to speak for camps at Hume over the years, and they rotate me to different weeks so the kids don't have to hear me every summer. But this year, they happened to rotate me onto the week when our students and leaders were up. So that was kind of fun. I got to spend the week with our high school students and with our leaders, and it was, it was a great week at camp. But I used to live at Hume Lake, and when I lived at Hume Lake, the first house we ever lived in, Shannon and I uh, had moved there in 2000. Jack, my oldest son, was born in 2000, and we were living in a little cabin called Staff 3, which is up in the subdivision. It's just like basically like a tiny little shack in the woods. And uh, it was a nice place to live. It's the first home we ever lived in. It's like the first place where we ever had like dishes in the cupboards and whatever. The only problem with Staff 3 is that it wasn't on the Hume Lake Camp's power grid. So most of the the housing and most of the buildings are on Hume Lake's power grid. And when the power goes out, which it does a lot because they're in the forest, when the snow comes and they get a lot of snow at Hume, then the power lines go down, the power goes out. and, And at Hume, when the power goes out, they have these massive generators. So they just turn on the generator and then it's no big deal. It feels like the power hasn't gone out. Your refrigerator works and your heater works and all those things are fine. But at Staff 3, we weren't on the Hume power grid. So when the power went out in the winter, that was it. We had no heat. We didn't have any electricity. We didn't have any ability to use our toaster or anything else. Except that there was a little gas generator out in a shed right outside our bedroom window. And so when the power went out the first time in the winter, the first winter we lived there, uh, I hike out in the snow. You know, it's like thigh deep. I hike out to this, uh, this little generator. I open up the shed. I've got like a gas canister and a funnel and I'm pouring gas into the generator. I know I'm making it sound like I had a really rough life as a kid. You know, I walk uphill in the snow or whatever, but I pour in gas into the generator and then I got to do the pull start thing, you know, and get it going. And finally I get the generator going and we've got power in our house, which is really nice. And I hike back inside and we're able to like, you know, turn the lights on and have a heater and whatever. And uh, as we're sitting there, it's only been like a few minutes, we're sitting there, and then our carbon monoxide alarms go off, right? And if you have carbon monoxide alarms, which you should, by the way, uh, they start to squeal. And at first you think you're going to die, but then you figure out what's going on. Well, it turns out that little generator right outside our bedroom window was pumping carbon monoxide into our house, and so we were at risk. So then we were in a dilemma of do we 
turn off the generator and be cold? Or do we leave it on and just open some windows and try and figure out how to survive, whatever? We, we, we navigated it the first time. But then the next day I went down to like the Hume maintenance department and I said, hey, we got a problem with our generator because it's pumping carbon dioxide into our house and I have a little baby and my wife and I, we don't want to die in our sleep. We're really nervous about it. The alarms are going off. Like, can anybody fix it for us? And they said, well, we will, we're going to put it on the list of things to fix. And I was like, well, oh, oh thank you. But like, I'm like... My family's living in that house right now. And they're like, well, yeah, but we got roads we got to plow and we got power lines we got to get fixed and we got all those other things we got to do. So we will work on your generator, but it's not going to be today or tomorrow or what it's going to be a little while. And I was like, well, okay, okay, but what am I supposed to do for right now? And they're like, ah, you'll probably be fine. You'll probably be fine. So I go back into my house. I tell my wife, our new little baby, I'm like, they said, like, we just kind of got to deal with it for now. So, you know, we're just going to turn the generator on and we'll just hope we don't die, you know? And so that was kind of what we were going to do. We're thinking about our own mortality. We turn on the generator, you know, and you're just kind of, we unplugged all the carbon monoxide alarms so they weren't squealing all the time. And then we started thinking about it and we're like, you know, everybody that lives at Hume Lake is like, they're, they're all staff. So it's all like your friends or like the people you work with it might be your bosses or your employees or whatever. Like there's no strangers at Hume. We all know each other. And then I start thinking like, if we die in our sleep, because they got to get the roads plowed or whatever, you know, if we die in our sleep, I don't want my friends to come up and find me in my underpants. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want that final humiliation of them finding my dead body in my underwear. So for about a week, Shannon and I just went to sleep every night in jeans and t-shirts, right? It's like fully dressed, sleeping on the top of the bed, essentially so that when they found our dead bodies, we wouldn't be embarrassed. When you think you're going to die, you make some interesting choices, right? Mine in particular had to do with avoiding shame in the afterlife. That's what I was aiming at, right? Eventually, somebody asked me after the last service, they're like, so what happened? Did you die? And I'm like, no, I didn't. We, we lived. What? Come on. Eventually, they came up and fixed it. And these days, they've made so many advances that Staff 3, the house we lived in, is now on the Hume Power Grid, so they don't have to worry about that generator at all. What a miracle of technology. Uh, but at the time, we were really scared. Jacob is heading to Egypt. Here's where all that was going. Jacob is heading to Egypt, and while he's excited to see his son Joseph... He has some fears. I think his fears center around a couple of different things. I think there's a part of Jacob that is fearful because he remembers that his grandfather Abraham had a lot of trouble in the midst of famine when he went to Egypt. It created a marital trouble. It created societal trouble. There was all kinds of drama that was generated when his grandfather went to Egypt. I think, I think it's also possible that Jacob remembers that God had said to Abram before his name was changed to Abraham, God had said to him, hey, you're going to become a great nation, but your people are going to go to a foreign land and they're going to be enslaved there for 400 years. That's in Genesis 15, 13. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there for they will be afflicted for 400 years. I think maybe in the back of Jacob's mind, he's thinking, is this the moment? Is this the moment when the prophecy to my grandfather Abram comes true, where we move from the the land of promise and we go to a different place and then we're enslaved there? We're in the midst of persecution and suffering for 400 years? And if that's in the back of his mind, that's acceptable because that is exactly what's happening. This is the moment that God had told Abram about. Jacob may be thinking about the time that God came to his father, Isaac, and strictly forbade him to go to Egypt in the midst of a famine. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. God had come to Isaac, Jacob's dad, and said, I know there's a famine in the land. Don't leave. Stay put. Don't go to Egypt. So I think in Jacob's mind, he's got the prophecy about 400 years of enslavement. He's got the warning to his father explicitly not to go. We know that Jacob is preoccupied with his own mortality because he keeps talking about the fact that he's going to die soon. I think Jacob's also worried about going to a pagan place. I think he's worried about going to Egypt and going to a place where, where the systems are entirely different and they're completely foreign. Jacob's life hasn't been easy in the land of promise, but God has refined him. And God has spoken to him. And God has grown him. He's not the same guy he was at the beginning of his life. The land of Canaan for Jacob has been a transformative place, a place of communion with God. And I think he's got some some reticence and some nervousness about leaving this place because he knows how God works in Canaan. He's seen it happen. But he doesn't know anything about Egypt. He doesn't know anything about what happens there except the stories he's heard. I think there is also a sense in the heart of Jacob as he's thinking about this where he remembers that God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to him that he would make him a great nation in their land of covenant, that God has made a land covenant with them. God has made a land covenant with the nation of Israel. And he said, this is going to be your place. And so I think Jacob is reluctant and hesitant to leave the land of promise to go to Egypt, even though he's hungry, even though his son Joseph is there. He's got all of these warring questions in his mind. Is it my responsibility to stay on this land in order to make what God has said happen? Am I, do I have to forcefully require that to, to occur by my own actions or can I negate it? And so it's interesting that Jacob comes in Genesis 46 and he offers a sacrifice and God speaks to him. In the time we have this morning, I want us to look at God's response to Jacob in the midst of his sacrifice and in the midst of his question. Because the reality is all of us are at different crossroads. No matter who you are, whether you're facing big things today or little things, no matter who you are, we're asking ourselves questions about how best to live the life that God has given us. And sometimes it can feel kind of overwhelming. Maybe even this morning you feel yourself split between two choices where you go, well, I really want to go and see my son Joseph, but I also don't want to negate the covenant of God. I also don't want to go to a place that God doesn't want me. I also don't want to repeat the mistakes of my father or my grandfather. I I don't want to fall in these same traps. Maybe you're asking some of those same questions about decisions in front of you. And so I think it's helpful this morning in the time we have to both recognize that with his doubts and with his questions and with his anxiety and fear, he comes to God, right? So let's just start there. If you have questions about the fork in the road in front of you, Pay attention to Jacob's Jacob's action here because what he does is he brings those questions to God. But for our purposes this morning, let's not only look at the fact that Jacob brings those questions to God, let's all of us look at God's response to Jacob. There are five things that characterize the response of God to Jacob, and I just want you to see them briefly this morning. Verse 2 of chapter 46, God spoke to Israel. By the way, if you're confused about the name Israel and Jacob, same guy, right? Remember that God had renamed Jacob Israel. And interestingly, here in 46, God continues to use Jacob's old name, right? So in in verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. 
The first thing I want you to see that characterizes God's response to Jacob in this moment of uh, on the edge of the promised land in Beersheba asking the question, should I stay or should I go? The first thing I want you to see that's true for Jacob and true for us is that the God of the universe identifies himself, right? He says to Jacob, I'm God. I'm the one who created all things, right? By all things, uh, we're, we're, we're the, I'm the one who made them and I'm the one who sustains them. Colossians 1 says that Jesus upholds the, the world, that it all exists for him and through him and by him for his glory. That the God of the universe who can say, I am God, the God of your forefathers, also calls Jacob by name. Now that might seem like a simple thing, right? It might seem like a thing you just want to skip over really quick, but check this out. The God who created everything, who created the Grand Canyon and filled the oceans with water, the God who created everything and holds everything together by his power, knows a human being's name. And it isn't just true of Jacob, it's true of each and every one of us. We have a personal God who knows us and loves us, who cares about us. You might be feeling this morning like the personal situation you're in, or the question you have, or the fear you have, or the doubts you have are not worthy of God's attention. But God, the creator of the universe, knows your name. He knows your circumstance. He hears your cries. I love the fact that he calls out to Jacob by name, and then he says, I I am God. He wants Jacob to feel the sense of the fact that the creator and sustainer knows him. We have this, this God who knows us. In his grandeur and his glory, he is yet personal. Let's go on and look at the next characteristic here. It says, God spoke to Israel He says, Jacob, then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, or if you have one of our Genesis journals, I invite you to circle or to underline the word there in that next phrase, right? Here's what God says to him. He says, you don't need to be afraid. So he tells Jacob, there's no need for fear. He says, don't be afraid, for there I will make you into a great nation. This is so weird. It's really weird that God says it's in Egypt that you will become great because all of the covenants before to Abraham and Isaac had been, I'm giving you this land, I'm going to be your God, I will protect you, and you will have all these descendants and I will make you great. And so his assumption was that God will do that work of greatness in our covenanted land. One of the reasons why I think Jacob wasn't sure going to Egypt was the right choice because he believed, and we fall into the same trap sometimes, That God can only work in a certain context. That he can only work in a certain place that he's limited by the ways we've experienced him before. There's a very common thing that happens with all of us where God will meet us in a special way. God will speak to us. Maybe he spoke to you through a worship conference. Or maybe he spoke to you through a sermon you heard once. Maybe he spoke to you through a book you read. Or through a Bible study you're in. Or through a community group or whatever. God speaks to you. And then there's a thing that happens in our minds where we go, God spoke to me there. And so I want to keep going back to there. I want to reread that book or I only want to listen to that pastor speak or I only want to go to this worship conference every year because God speaks to me in this one way. And there's a limited perception on our part that says if God has moved in the past, he can only move in that same way in the future. And all of a sudden we can get frustrated because sometimes the past is very difficult to recreate. Sometimes what we experienced in the past is absolutely not recreatable. And so then we get to a place where we're like, well, God can't move at all. God spoke to me through this particular type of thing in this particular way. And if I can't get that back, I'll never hear God's voice again. And it can be a source of despair. Jacob is looking at his own life and going, God called us to this land. He covenanted with us and gave us this place. I can't leave this place. And what God says is, 
I gave you this land as part of the covenant, but the work I'm going to do, I can do wherever I want. And I will continue to move in your life. He says, in Egypt, that's where you'll become great. Don't be afraid. Because I am God still in Egypt, right? It's interesting to note uh, in the genealogy that we get in Genesis 40, 46, there's the listing of some 70 names that go with him into Egypt. Uh, by the time they leave Egypt, after 400 years of oppression, the people of Israel will number almost 2 million, right? Almost 2 million. They will become a great nation in the midst of suffering and enslavement. God will redeem even that awful circumstance and fulfill his promise in Egypt. So he says to Jacob, not only I know you, but you don't need to be afraid to go to Egypt because there I will make you a great nation. I want you to just ask yourself for a second if it's possible that God can be God in your life in a way that might be new to you or in a place that might be new to you or through an avenue that might be new to you. Can God still be God in something you haven't experienced before? I hope so. But sometimes we lose sight of that. God says to Jacob, it is there in Egypt that I will make you great. Let's keep reading. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Verse 4, he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. So the third thing that he affirms in the life of Jacob is you're not going alone. I'm going with you, right? I am with you all the time. And, and this is true for Jacob. God makes him this promise. But I want you to hear me this morning say that what is true for Jacob is actually doubly true for us this morning. Because we don't have to wait for God to say, hey, you know that trip you were thinking of taking to Wisconsin? I'll go with you to Wisconsin. We don't have to wait for God to say, hey, you know the thing you were thinking about switching from the job you're doing at the factory and going over here to be a a carpenter or whatever? I'm going to go with you to this new job. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to wait for God to affirm and reaffirm and reaffirm his presence. because, Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, God sent his Holy Spirit, the helper, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. We don't have to wait to see whether God's going to go with us into a new chapter, whether God's going to walk with us into the difficulty we're facing. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us. You can't go anywhere without God. The bottom of the ocean and the top of the mountain, God is with you still. So God affirms for Jacob, hey, you're not going by yourself. I'm going to go with you. And that's a great promise for Jacob. I want us to hear this morning that the God of the universe just doesn't say he's going to be with us. The God of the universe has taken residence within us. And that's even better. Not only does he tell Jacob, I will go with you and promise his presence, but also in verse four, he says, I will also bring you up again. I'm going to go with you down into Egypt and I will bring you up again. That's an interesting promise for God to make because for what it's worth, Jacob will die in Egypt. Jacob's not coming out. Different, different commentators and theologians speculate on a different length of time for Jacob's life, but some will say he, he'll live another 40 years. I, I'm not sure about how long he lives, but what God does confirm, we're going to look at this in a second, is that Jacob will, will die in Egypt. And yet God says to him, I'm going to go with you in and I'm going to come with you out. What's God saying to him? God's saying to him, you're not going to be there forever. This is a season of life. It's a chapter, but it isn't the whole story. You see, I've made you some promises to make you great and to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. I have made you a covenant to offer you some land and you will be on that land. I will come back out with you. What God is affirming is that he is true to his word. For us, a passage like Hebrews 10, 23 that says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful should give you, should give you hope, right? That God does what he says he's going to do. 
Psalm chapter 33 verse 4 says, For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When God says to Jacob, I will bring you up again, he's saying this next chapter isn't forever. Sometimes it can feel like the decisions we're making today are going to stick with us for always. And God is saying, there are different seasons. I'll walk with you in all of them. We're going to go down into Egypt together and we're going to come up out of Egypt together. And even though he affirms that he will stay true to the promise that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's also reminding Jacob of is that his promises extend beyond Jacob's life. So it's one thing at the beginning of this to say, hey, the God of the universe knows you and he loves you. It can be very easy at that point to think of our relationship with God as a purely individualistic thing and to think like it's, oh, the story that God is writing in the universe is all about him and me. That isn't true either, right? While he knows us and he loves us, there is a story that God is writing and there are promises that God will fulfill that go beyond the span of our days that extend beyond our ability to see or hear or understand, that God is still working beyond the scope of our finite life. Does that make sense? So he's saying to him, you're going to go into Egypt and I I will bring you out, meaning your people, even though Jacob's not going to be a part of that exodus. Jacob won't be there for that. God says, I keep my word, but my promises to you go beyond your own lifetime. And that brings us to the last thing I want you to see that God says in Genesis 46. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This doesn't mean that Joseph is going to help you take a nap, right? This isn't about closing your eyes to sleep. This is about his death. The thing that Jacob's worried about. The thing that Jacob has been somewhat preoccupied with. God now looks at Jacob and says, you are going to die in Egypt. Right? You are going to die in Egypt. But here's a little thing I want you to know. When you die, your son Joseph, who you've missed all these years, who you thought was dead, the son who you love, he's going to be right there with you when you die. And he'll actually be the one who closes your eyes at your death. Now, now here's a little thing I want you to see at the end of this message here. God didn't have to tell him this. God didn't have to say this to Jacob. God could have said to Jacob, yeah, you know what? I'm going to bring your people back up, but you're going to die there. When God takes the extra step to say, and Joseph will close your eyes, you know, you know why I think he does that? This is just my, my opinion, right? So you take it for what it's worth. I think he does it because our God is a God of little kindnesses. I think he tells Jacob that Joseph's going to close his eyes just because God's nice. Because God is kind. Because God knows that in the midst of Jacob's fear and his apprehension and his worry and all these other things, that saying something like this to Jacob, hey, you know, Joseph, who you're anxious to see and who you've missed all these years, you will never be away from him again the rest of your life. That life might not be very long, but you will never be away from Joseph again. I think God articulates this to him because God is a God of little kindnesses. It's interesting. We, we, we know God's kind and we know God's gracious. But most of the time when we're affirming it, we're affirming it in the grand sense, right? We're like, God is good. He causes the rain and the sun to fall on the wicked and the, you know, the good in equal measure. He is good and kind. We think about his grace for all men. We think about the incarnation and and the gesture of love that that puts forth for all men, right? And we think about the fact that our God is a God of grand gestures and beautiful, big kindness. And that is true. He is. He is that. But sometimes in our affirmation of the big kindness of God, 
we miss the fact that he's also a God who knows us. And sometimes he just, sometimes he's just nice to us, even in the midst of difficulty. Sometimes God just blesses. I don't know what kind of hard things you've gone through, but as I reflected on preparing for this message, and I thought about my own life. There are several seasons in my life that have been very hard. And yet in the very, very difficult seasons of my life, I can point specifically to places where God was just nice to me. Didn't have to be. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It wasn't a thing that like God was paying off a debt or whatever. That in the midst of really sad seasons and really difficult seasons and seasons of struggle and seasons of fear and seasons of anxiety, seasons where I'm going, did I make the right choice? Was I supposed to, was I supposed to stay in Canaan or am I supposed to be in Egypt? Like, what am I doing? That, that we have a God who doesn't just cause sun and rain to fall on the good and the bad. He does that. But he's also a God who sometimes just, just blesses you with a little kindness, something specific for you that makes a difference in your life because he knows you and he loves you. I don't know what kind of decisions you're trying to make today. I don't know what kind of crossroads you find yourself in. But God says to him, your final days will be days of wholeness and shalom, oneness with your family. In our big decisions, we also have the ability to approach God and bring our doubts and our fears and our anxieties, but we don't make a sacrifice the way Jacob did, right? So what I'm not advocating for this morning is that if you're at a crossroads, you're trying to decide what college you go to or who to date or what, you're trying to figure out these things in your life. I'm not saying go out and find a bull or a goat and sacrifice it, you know, and say, God, tell me what to do. There's a different kind of a sacrifice for people of the New Testament. For what it's worth, God has not made a land covenant with the church. There is no land covenant for disciples of the Lord Jesus. There was a land covenant for the people of Israel. There is not a land covenant for us. What we have is an invitation into the kingdom of God, which is not physical. And we have been invited not to build an empire. We have been invited to lay down our lives. So so it's not coincidental then that in Romans chapter 12, in talking about the will of God, it calls us to make a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice of a bull or a goat. Listen to the kind of sacrifice that's called when we're trying to discern God's will at the crossroads in our lives as followers of Jesus. It says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're at a spot today where you're going like, I, I, I want to go see my son in Egypt, but I also don't want to negate the covenant of God. As I understand, I don't want to make God upset. I have questions about what it's going to be like to be here or there. If you're at a crossroads, and if you're not today, you will be tomorrow, right? If you're at a crossroads, there is an invitation for you to come back to a place where you can hear God's voice and make a sacrifice. But it's not of an animal. It's not putting out fruit on a tray or laying, you know, all of your fancy knickknacks out for God, whatever. The, the call to sacrifice is for us to lay down our very lives. Those are the terms of our covenant with God, with Christ. The terms of our covenant have to do with sacrifice. They have to do with humility. They have to do with suffering, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. So we lay down our lives. We lay down our lives as the sacrifice. And then we go, I have questions about what to do next. And in that moment where we seek the heart of God in a mind of sacrifice, what Romans 12 tells us is that in that moment where we've laid down our lives, we will have the ability to discern God's good and perfect and acceptable will. God will come to us because he's the God of the same character. He will come to us and remind us that he knows us, even though he's the creator of all things. That we don't have to be afraid, right? Because he can work in any and every circumstance. There is no need for fear. 
He will come to us and, and remind us that he is with us always. I love in the Great Commission that God doesn't just tell us to make disciples. He says, I got all the power and I'll be with you always, right? That's in Matthew, that's in Matthew 28, right there with the Great Commission. I got all the power and I'm going to be with you. So he'll remind us of his presence. He'll also remind us that his work, the work he's doing on this planet and through human history is bigger than just our human existence. And then many times, if my experience means anything, he'll just be kind to you in a little way that nobody else maybe will see, that nobody else will know about. It'll just be between you and him, but he'll just throw you a bone and go, I I see you, I love you, I'm with you, let's go, right? Our God is a God of big kindnesses and he's a God of little kindnesses and he's the same today as he was then. We have the opportunity to lay down our lives and then to be discerning about how to take next steps, to look at the heart of Christ, to listen to how Christ is revealed in the scripture, to walk in human community, to discern what the spirit is leading us to do. But all of that in honor of the revelation of Christ that's meant to be happening in our own lives. Jacob, before he goes to Egypt, he stops and he says, God, is this the right thing? And the key for us is recognizing that our best decisions are made when they begin with that question. God, is this the right thing? Because there's lots we don't know. And he will guide us as we lay down our lives as a sacrifice. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would, uh, that you, that you would help us just to revel in the fact that you are a God who is with us, whose work is larger than just the span of our lives. A God who holds all things together and yet knows us by name. A God of grand gestures and a God of little kindnesses. I thank you for the way you treated Jacob in his fear and his his apprehension. The comfort that you give him and the fact that immediately following this dream, he got in the wagon and went to Egypt. We'll hear more of that next week. But would you help each and every one of us in this place who call you our king? to seek your face in the midst of the forks in the road, the places where we think we know what to do, but we want to be sure we're aligned with your heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.